is Johnny. I'm a pastor here. Uh, just a slight correction. Uh, we actually are going to deliver Thanksgiving boxes, not the 13th, the 20th. So after service, it's kind of uh, a tradition we've done that we've kind of rekindled last year where uh, after service, we, we serve about 110 right now. Families, we give them the full Thanksgiving meal. And so uh, you just, just hopefully you plan on attending and just allotting, um, you know, it's usually about 30 minutes after service to uh, just deliver those Thanksgiving meals. And so, yeah, it's daylight savings time, which just for me means my kids are up at 5.30 instead of 6.30. So that's great. And uh, anyways, let's pray and let's jump in. So Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, each person that's here. And just uh, just hearing the announcements and the child dedication and what's all going on, just it's life. And I'm thankful for your life, that in your kingdom there's life. And it just, uh, it blossoms and blooms in lots of different areas that you just take ordinary, even dead things, and you bring them to life. And so, Lord, we just ask your spirit would move uh, in this place, that you would just, that would be our prayer. Whatever is dead in our lives, the things that need life, Spirit, we pray you would come. We pray that you would come. We'd experience your life. We pray our, our kids and our teens would experience your life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and go to Romans 11. That's a letter in the New Testament, so uh, it's towards the end there. We're going to get there eventually, but we'll be in Romans 11, um, a a letter that Paul wrote to to the Roman church. Uh, But uh, just so you know, so after service, we are doing a child dedication, uh, which is just the time to dedicate our childs. And what Christina is doing is um, she's giving every parent these little uh, marbles. She's giving them 52 marbles. And uh, just as a sample to recognize, there's only 52 weeks in a year. And uh, what I have up here is, I, I, I have this in my office that I keep in my office, is I have 936 marbles that I keep in my office, and it's the, it's the reminder that I have 93 weeks, or 900 and, uh, 936 weeks from the time with my kids, from the time they are zero until they hit t- 18, there's 936 weeks that I get to spend with them. And if I just even thinking about it, visually, you're supposed to like every week, you're supposed to take out a marble every week. And since I have multiple kids, I don't want to like have, you know, two different things of marbles. But anyway, uh, if I think about Levi's life, he's uh, six, that's a third of the marbles gone, right? And so now I have just two thirds of the marbles left. And this idea that uh, it should, gives us this a visual of just what's important in life and how to be intentional in your life. And so for each one of us, though, if, if we were to each represent our whole life, that if each of us had a case, uh, the reality is um, it would equal to about 28,000 days, 28,000 marbles that represent your life. Uh, roughly, that's estimated that the average lifespan is around 79 years old, so if you're older than that, I mean, so, I mean you're on overtime. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you're good. You're good. But it's just to show you just the, the, that life is, is, is moving. It's time, right? And it reflects what's important to us. And, and this is real. We just have a, a limited number of days or number of weeks. And, and if you think about that, even if you think about 28,000 days, that seems like a lot of days, right? That seems like a lot. But if you even think about sleeping, all right? Immediately, 28,000, you lose a third of those in sleep, 
right? And so you take that now, you're down to, to um, that equates to about eight to 9,000 days of your life that you just spend sleeping, all right? It's a little less if you have twins, um, but um, you spend not a chunk of that, a third of that sleeping. Then you spend about uh, 4,000 of days of your life uh, le doing leisure things, socializing. And I have a graph of this uh, that just kind of shows that it's really, really hard to read, but you can get this picture. Uh, the big bulk of the yellow there is, is sleeping. The next is just leisure time, uh, whatever you equate to that, socializing, checking social media, that sort of thing. Um, you spend about 3,700 3, days of your life working your job, all right? So that's a big part of, of your life, the light blue there. There's household activities, different things. Uh, if you commute, um, how many commute to work at some point? The average is about 51 minutes to an hour is the average commute time, which equates to one whole year of your life going to be sitting in a car in traffic. All right? That just sounds awesome, right? Just below that is, uh, and this is science. Science backs this up. You will, for guys, we spend 309 days going to the bathroom, okay? Um, women, you only spend 259 days going to the bathroom. So just science, if you ask why we take so long, it, it just it is what it is. <laughs> it's silent, someone said yes. You can't read it, but right down at the, towards the very bottom, uh, and this is actually showing from actually the number of days you have from 18 to 79. There's a number that says religious and spiritual activities at 138, 138. Or if you want to equate the full 79, it's equal to about 172 or 171 days, and that's if you come for an hour every week. All right. So this is no judgment, right? It's a, I get it. But if you take that same percentage and you have 936 marbles. It equates to about six marbles of your life. Sunday mornings, six marbles. Man, it really is depressing being a pastor. <laughs> to think six marbles of your life is going to church. And that's if you go every Sunday. And I, if you're super religious and you, you feel like I grew up multiple, come multiple times a week, you can maybe get 12, right? But you get the point. Worship is what we've been talking about. And I, my hope is if you only see worship as this, what do we do with this, right? You get the, you get the picture here. I, I hope you would know that worship is more than something we do on Sundays. It's more than songs we sing. It's more than a, um, you know, a type of music that we may listen in, in, uh, in our car. But what, at the heart of worship, and what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, is worship is, in its truest essence, a response and expression. So last week, we talked that worship was embodied, meant that our bodies reflect and express what truly matters to us, but how should we view worship in light of all the marbles that kind of make up our life? What does worship look like beyond Sunday mornings? And again, to answer that question, that gets us to Romans 11. And that's where we're going to be. And we're going to be in Romans 11, verse 33. And it's kind of really hard, to be honest, to preach out of Romans. Like, uh, Romans is this um, elaborate theological um, it's, it's this masterful piece of art uh, that, that actually Paul wrote to give to this Roman church. And he, he's basically um, 
just defending his like theological expression of what the, of Jesus's work on the cross actually means for our lives. And so it, it means um, that everything is rooted in faith in Jesus, and he's speaking to both a Jew and Gentile uh, nation that are now together, and, and through faith in Jesus, there's this new humanity that is being transformed by God's Spirit. And this is fulfilling all the things that God had promised to Israel in the Old Testament. And so it's actually also providing a basis because the Jews and Gentiles, they're just kind of um, frustrated and debating on what's, how do you truly respond and express what Jesus has done to us. And so Paul is writing, trying to give this huge argument of what Jesus' work on the cross means. So that's what he does for the first 11 chapters. He's like, boom, boom, boom. This is what Jesus' life and resurrection means for us. And he gets to the very end of chapter 11, and we're in verse 33. And for some of you, if you have your Bibles, it'll say a hymn of praise or a doxology. Does anybody, some of you may have that. So let's, let's read that. This is where he is. He breaks out in this kind of worship song. He says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has, who has been his counselor, and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So he goes through this. This is like this doxology. You guys, you guys are familiar with the doxology, right? We, we uh, for whatever reason, our, our uh, family reunion, we sing a, a similar doxology, right? Praise God through whom all blessings flow. I'm not going to sing anymore, right? Sing from all of the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Right? What is that? Amen. Yes, I forgot the amen. <laughs> what is that? That's this communal praise, right? It's, this is, it's what it's meant to be, this communal expression and response just to the goodness of God. And this is what Paul gets to. He gets to this, again, the importance of, of coming together and having this communal response to, can you just believe what, what God, like, who God is and what he's done, this unsearchable, his, the depths of his, of his treasures, and he breaks out in worship in a, in a way that is familiar to us in, in song or in doxology. But he just doesn't stop there, right? The letter continues, and he's going to show us how worship then matters for the rest of our life. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So first, he says, therefore, right? Because of what I just sang about in this hymn, but what I just wrote about for the previous uh, 11 chapters, uh, because of this evidence... This is now what I want you to do. This is how I actually want you to worship, and it's in view of the mercies of God. Uh, one um, lexicon defines the mercy of God as the deep feelings God has for all of us and powerfully shows and shares in those that follow him. So in everything, it's about God's 
mercy. And, and Paul comes to this, this church and he says, I urge you, or some of your versions may, I appeal to you or I exhort you. I want you to kind of get a picture of a coach in this moment. He's like, I'm not commanding you anything, but, but there's what this picture is, is actually means to get up and close and personal. And so Paul's like, I'm getting up and close and personal, and I'm urging you based off of this evidence of God's mercy. Now this is what I want you to do. So it's just like a coach who's, you know, getting his team together. This is what we need to do, and it's based off of this. And he says, the way you embody even the mercies of God is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your, your whole self. And when he says this is true worship, even that word true actually means it's the logical, it's the most reasonable response to all the things that Jesus has done, again, from the first 11 chapters. And that word worship actually means a sacred service. A lot of times worship in either the New Testament or Old Testament refers to some sort of bodily expression, but in this context it means service, like service rendered to God or defined as divine worship. So, you know, you have Eugene Peterson that has the message version. Okay, this is Johnny's message version, okay? I've, I've kind of summarized this this. To this, even this one verse, because I want you to get the feel for this. It says, because of the deep feelings God has towards you, representing his mercy, and the evidence of that embodied by the coming of Jesus and his sacrifice for you and all that is available to us in the life of Jesus, I'm getting close up, up close and personal like a coach to urge and appeal to you that the most reasonable and logical response and expression to the value of this undeserving gift is to give your whole ordinary life as a sacrificial offering to God that's uncommon and set apart. This is the kind of worship and service that pleases God. So you get the point, hopefully, through that, my little paraphrase, all right? Um, don't worry, I'm not trying to translate the Bible, all right? But that our whole lives is seen as worship. That all, all of our marbles are seen as worship. This is what it means to, to see that worship is a lifestyle. It's a, something we choose to do that all of life reflects out of worship. It's, it's our time, our ambitions, our possessions, our ears, our mouths, even our sexuality. It's all of our emotions and attitudes. Paul's description of this, which uh, I like Tim Keller says this, he says we're called to be a living sacrifice, but the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. But what it reminds us is that we have to keep, go, keep on going, offering our lives as a sacrifice to God, offering the whole of our life for the whole of our life. See, worship is about all of our life, and it's specifically, it's about sacrifice. I'm going to talk mainly for the, a big chunk of this, the role sacrifice is in our worship. If you actually look at the first word worship is used in the Bible, in Genesis 22, uh, a lot of times authors would do this, that the first time they would use a word in their literary style, it was used as almost a definition to be used later on. And so the first time uh, worship is used uh, is in Genesis 22, where, where God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And, and so it, what, what happens is there's this communication between Abraham and his servants, and, uh, 
And, and Abraham tells his servants, we, talking about him and Isaac, are going to go up on this mountain and we are going to worship God. And at the heart of this experience and the heart of this story is about sacrifice. God was asking, are you willing to lay down your son? Which is more valuable to you, me or your only one son? And in this context, you might be like, that is like the cruelest thing a God could ask a father. And in that culture, pagan culture, that was actually a regular practice, was that in order to appease these, these other gods, these idols, it was to give up your children as a sacrifice. And yet, as the story goes on, there's, there's good news to this story, that, that Abraham is willing and he follows through and he's obedient and they get to the top, and they get everything ready, and, and God says, no, 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 I don't want you to kill your son. I've provided the sacrifice. And there's a ram that's up there that's tangled up, and, and then Abraham sacrifices the lamb. And it's pointing this picture of this beautiful story that points the picture of Jesus, right? That, that Jesus is, or God's saying, I'm going to provide the sacrifice. And so we see at the heart of worship is sacrifice. And so what I want to talk a little bit about today is even this idea of sacrifice and what sacrifice embodies or expresses. What, what we said the word embody means is to take something that's invisible and make it visible in a tangible way. And so sacrifice actually gives an expression or gives tangible or visible form to something like value. So how do you know what something is valued at? It's usually what somebody's willing to pay. All right, I'm going to use this example. All right, how many know uh, the value of Bitcoin? Does anybody know the value of Bitcoin? Anybody? Nobody? Don't worry. You do. Okay, it's fine. Don't be ashamed. I had to look it up this morning. How many don't know the value of Bitcoin, like have zero idea? All right, this, so this is going to work perfectly, all right? So I had to look this up this morning, okay? So how many would give a dollar for one Bitcoin? How many think that that's a good idea? All right. Most of you, okay, let's keep, them, let's keep our hands up, all right, just because I want to see it. How many would give $100 for a Bitcoin? Okay, how about uh, $10,000? Some of you are taking your hands down. How many would give $15,000 for a Bitcoin? Some of you are watching, like, who raised their hand that knows the value of the Bitcoin? How many would do $30,000 for a Bitcoin? Nobody, right? Well, I looked it up. The value of a Bitcoin is at $22,000, right? That's roughly. I think that's according to Google, all right? So I Googled it. But you guys understand this idea of something has value. Has anybody ever seen a Bitcoin? I've never seen one. Have you maybe seen one and, like, you pull up your computer and, like, tear it open and see it? All right? It's something that's it's inv it's invisible. But the reason it has value, right, is there's somebody's willing to sacrifice their cost or pay for it. And so at a heart of worship is this idea to give expression or to give visible or tangible evidence of the value of God in your life. You guys getting this with me, this idea? And so can you give visible or tangible form of the value of, your God, of God in your life without showing some sort of sacrifice? It's hard to find anywhere where you could see that sacrifice is a way that we embody and give expression to the value, of, again, of God in our life. And what's the most important or the most invaluable thing that you possess? Yourself. Your life. And you know one of the reasons why I think yourself is the most valuable thing that you can offer back to God 
is what was Jesus, what was God willing to pay for your life? His life. His sacrifice. So that your value, whatever you think you are worth, is defined again, give expression to, embodied by, what somebody was willing to pay for it. And at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the work of Jesus is saying, Jesus saying, I'm willing to, to lay down my life to show that you have value. Right? This is the heart of the story. Jesus, and in all of this, you see that Jesus embodies this first and then asks us to follow him. But here's the problem I think we have as, as a church is we've tried to take the sacrifice out of it, of following Jesus. We've tried to make following Jesus the least costly thing you can do in your life. And the unfortunate consequence of that is we've, what, lowered the value. We've lowered the value of what it means to follow Jesus. And I, I was just reading Matthew 13, um, the parable that Jesus shares, this parable of a guy. Um, he, he stumbles across the field, finds a treasure. He knows that this treasure is worth more than everything he has. And he says, I'm willing to, to sacrifice all that I have because I know the value that this treasure has in this field, and I'm willing to lay it all down. See, when we take, again, we take the sacrifice out of following Jesus, we reduce the value, again, that tangible form uh, or expression of, and what we end up with is what I'm fearful of, is we get consumers, not disciples. We get people who are willing to, to accumulate, but not willing to surrender or to give up. And here's this life of the disciple. is For us, worship drives our discipleship. Worship drives everything we do. Um, and because we are willing to give up everything because we've been forever changed by Jesus. I have a funny story to share. So this passage, Romans 1, and two has just has, was a super impactful uh, scripture in my life. So much so, um, I made it my like uh, password for like you know you're super spiritual when like uh, scripture becomes your password. And um, so my wife knows this password. And so the funny thing is is um, so my wife knows this password and I had to change it because I knew I was going to share the story. Um, so I got to come up with another scripture. Anyway, but it's Romans 12, 1 to 2. So it's Romans uh, 1, 2, 1, 2. And my wife thought it was Romans 12, verse 12. And so one Christmas, she got me this nice printed thing <laughs> of Romans 12, verse 12, which still fits. I still really like it. I'm very thankful for it. But the reason this is such an impact, well, I, I or go back to, I was in college. And it was my... Um, it would have been my sophomore year of college at Ohio State. And that summer, I had an encounter with Jesus. I said yes to him, or I rededicated my life to him. And, um, but that fall, I, I got kind of back into just trying to live kind of this dual life of, you know, kind of following Jesus, but like drinking natural light at 8.30 a.m. before a Buckeyes game, right? Um, just this back and forth life. And, um, 
and I was just really wrestling. And I, I uh, happened to be in, a, of all places, I was in a microbiology class, and my lab partner, um, we got to talking about Jesus somehow, and he's like, hey, well, you, you want to come to my Bible study? I was like, yeah, I really need that. I need some community. I need some people. So I started going to this Bible study. I eventually went to this retreat, and uh, it was through Campus Crusade, and um, went to this retreat, and I just was in this, I just felt this, this pull on both sides. And uh, I remember the guy who spoke, he spoke specifically on this passage about Romans 1 and 2, about um, laying our whole lives as a sacrifice to God, to not be conformed to the way of the world. And that's where I just felt, I felt like the world was just trying to conform. I just felt like I was pulled in these two different directions. And I just got to a point, I'm going to have to make a decision. Like either this thing is going to be my whole life or it's not, it's, it doesn't matter. And so I made it that retreat. I made this like, okay, I'm like, God, I give you, I give you all of it. My, my career, the relationship I was in at the moment, um, just what, what I viewed as success in life. And I just said, God, I want to lay that down and offer that to you. The reality is that was a one-time thing, and, and yet I continue to find myself over and over again doing that same thing of laying my life uh, before God, whatever you want to do. And this is the, um, it was a transformative moment in my life because I, I did, I truly just lay, God, you can take all of it. And there was a cost to it. I'm not going to sit here and say from then it was all peachy. It, it, it ended up a cost in a relationship. It ended up a cost in my career choice, um, just some different things. But here was the outcome. My, the outcome was transformation. The, I experienced transformation of what it means to live fully as a worship to God with my whole life. And you see this, this connection. I want you to connect these dots here from Romans 12, verse 1, to Romans 12, verse 2. Verse 2 says, right, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I'm going to nerd out just a little bit, and I think you guys can stick with me, all right? Can we just do that for a little bit, all right? And I'm not an English major. I went to Fairfield Union. Grammar was not my thing. <laughs> but as in I'm studying this, this is like blew my mind. So the word be transformed, that's just a verb, all right? And in the Greek, right, they're verbs. You can conjugate them in different ways. So if you're familiar, the only way I know what conjugate is because I took Spanish. And so you can conjugate verbs down differently. And same thing with the Greek. The Greek, you can conjugate the verb to mean different things. And this specific verb, um, be, transfer, tr be transformed, is a passive imperative. So I'm going to start to break those down because I think it's important. Passive means it's something that's done to you. So you can either have an active verb or a passive. Active means you're the one doing it. Passive means it's, it's being done to you. But imperative is a command. So in English, we just say, stop. We just, that's our first thing. But this is a imperative. So it's a command to do something, but it's being something done to you. You get that? Can you, can you feel that, like, tension? Like, wait. So what it means is a passive imperative is a command directed to you in which you are not the active doer, but rather the cooperator and recipient of someone else's doing 
yet you still retain responsibility. I'm going to put this quote on here from a guy named C.E.B. Cranfield. While this transformation is not the Christian's own doing, but the work of the Holy Spirit, they nevertheless have a real responsibility in the matter to let themselves be transformed, to respond to the leading and pressure of God's Spirit. The transformation is not something which is brought about in an instant. It has to be continually repeated, or rather it is a process which, which, which has to go on all the time the Christian is in this life. Nerding out stopped. What does that mean for us? We have a responsibility of something that, that has to be done to us. That responsibility, as Paul says in verse 1, is to what? Lay our lives down continually, our whole lives, by this living sacrifice. And when we do that, then it now creates the capacity to renew our minds with truth. So I'm going to give you an example. You, you've seen somebody do something destructive with their life, addiction, habits, whatever, right? And you try to present them truth, but it feels like it's just going off a wall, like there's just nothing there, right? See, sometimes with truth or to renew our mind, it requires us first to lay it down, to die, right? The way our thinking, the way we, we view life, or the way we do these things, in order then we can see truth. We can see, as Paul encourages us, the, what is good and pleasing and the perfect will of God. And then that effect has this, the presence of God to transform us. So our responsibility is actually just to continue to lay down our life and then to renew our minds. Do you, do you see those? Those are the things we can do is this ongoing surrender to the work of the Spirit in our life and then to renew our minds. And so this is this tie. So worship is all about our lives. Worship drives our discipleship. You guys follow me? You guys getting with me? I think sometimes I have this picture that discipleship involves just getting and trying to get people to worship. But it's worship that drives all of our discipleship, all of ourselves being transformed day in and day out, more and more like Jesus until all the marbles are out. This is the life of Jesus. It's continuing to surrender our life over and over again. Our desires, all these things, our plans, giving them to Jesus. Our struggles, our addictions, all the things that are weighing us down, giving them to Jesus over and over and over again. And here's the promise, that as we do that, whole lives, every marble, everything is continually being a work of the Spirit, transforming us more and more like Jesus. This is what it means to worship with our lives. It's to worship with our lives, seeing that this is, this, this is what Jesus has for us uh, to those who follow him. Whew, that was uh, I don't know, that was good. That was transformative to me. Maybe not for you. You don't have to clap. That's all right. But this is the life that we have. This is the life. This is the tie of worship and discipleship. And so, um, Paul, I, I'm going to just encourage you for, for this week to read Romans 12 through 14. Because Paul will go out and outline, then this is what it looks like. This is how you can renew your mind. This is how to do relationships. This is how these different aspects of your life matter and how you can worship in the different aspects of your life. So this week, uh, just read Romans 12 through 14. You can continue to read the whole chapter. That's, Paul's letters most likely have this point where he's arguing and, and giving this theological heady type thing, and then this is how you live it out. 
And then I would encourage you, just like we've been talking about, if you've never been baptized, I think this is just another easy first step. Because it's the symbolism of just saying, I'm laying my life, I'm identifying myself with Jesus, and I'm now this living sacrifice with him. And so I'd encourage you, if you've never, this is like, I'm not going to manipulate you or, or twist your arm, but a good first step, and this is baptism, is, is physically representing I'm giving Jesus my all. I, I, I'm trusting him with my, my whole life, and I'm trusting that he's going to raise that and transform my life with him. I'm going to have the worship team come up, but I, I'm going to read this poem. I wasn't playing on this. Uh, just in my reading uh, yesterday, one of the books I'm reading um, I was reading this poem, and it just struck, and I just felt, felt compelled to, to read it as we close. It's a poem by a, a lady named Margaret Halaska, and the, the, the title of this poem is called The Covenant. And it says this, God knocks at my door, seeking a home for his son. Rent is cheap, I say, but God says, I don't want to rent, I want to buy. I'm not sure I want to sell, but you might come in and look around. I think I will, says God. I might let you have a room or two. I like it, says God. I'll take the two. You might decide to give me more someday. I can wait, says God. I'd like to give you more, but it's a bit difficult. I need some space for me. I know, says God, but I'll wait. I like what I see. Hmm. Maybe I can let you have another room. I really don't need that much. Thanks says, thanks, says God. I'll take it. I like what I see. I'd like to give you the whole house, but I'm not sure. Think on it, says God. I wouldn't put you out. Your house would be mine, and my son would live in it. You do, you'd have more space than you'd ever had before. I, I don't understand at all. I know, says God, but I can't tell you about that. You have to discover it for yourself. That can only happen if you let me have the whole house. A bit risky, I say. Yes, says God, but try me. I'm not sure. I'll let you know. I can wait, says God. I like what I see. Would you stand with me?